Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. Today, you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. Let's begin the program. Adam Smith is the Vice President of Corporate Development for Roco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Oroco is a Canadian-based exploration company with gold, silver, and zinc assets in Sonora State, Mexico. Oroco expects to begin producing high-grade gold as well as silver at their Cerro Prieto project in 2013. Adam, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. What's the latest out of Sonora State and Cerro Prieto? We've advanced Cerro Prieto through the permitting process, through engineering, through costing, and bringing all of those factors that are necessary to start construction up to date. We expect during 2012 we will be in construction of the gold and silver mine at Cerro Prieto. And uh, as I've said uh, before when we spoke, the construction process of a mine of this type is fairly rapid. We expect less than a year from ground breaking to production. And during 2011, we prepared for construction by acquiring the surface rights to the ranch that hosts the mine. We've also constructed a road from the property to a nearby highway. We have prepared for construction by leveling the ranch infrastructure and removing the ranch infrastructure from around the area of the mine, and otherwise just preparing in general for the commencement of major construction. So production is in fact scheduled to begin in 2013 then? That's correct. If construction is underway in 2012, we would expect production of gold and silver to commence in 2013. What is the company saying they have in the ground? Since we listed the company in an IPO in 2008, we've conducted 15,000 meters of exploration and development drilling. We announced a 43-101 compliant resource on the project of 390,000 ounces of gold and 6 million ounces of silver. As you know, there's considerable strike length of the geological structure that hosts that resource that remains untested. We've tested on surface, and we announced in December the commencement of another drill program to develop more ore, so we expect to add to that resource. But the figure that we came up with at the end of the 15,000 meters of drilling was sufficient to design and finance and put the mine in construction, and we hope to expand the resource both in the current drill program and out of cash flow that the mine will generate. Now, you just started a drilling program last month. 
How is that progressing? That started just before the Christmas break. A number of holes were completed, and the target in this drill program is 500 meters of strike length of the geological structure that is immediately contiguous to the current mine. So it's very conveniently located to incorporate into a mine plan, and we've tested on surface that structure, and we have very good gold grades and very good silver grades at surface across sufficient widths to lead us to believe that there's good potential there to expand the resource of gold and silver. So your plan basically is to go into production as soon as you can and use that revenue to step out the project. That's correct. This is a little bit of a different model than some companies follow. Normally, a company would completely drill out a mineralized prospect to determine the size of the resource and only then design a mine and seek financing for a mine. But because of the very unique opportunity that we have in northern Mexico, uh, it's an area of relatively low costs. It's an area where you can permit these things quite rapidly, and it's an area where the services available to a mining company are tremendous and plentiful. So whether it's drillers, mine construction contractors, or any of the other necessary services. So we realized we had an opportunity to put a mine into production rapidly and at relatively low cost and realize cash flow from that and utilize that cash flow to expand the resource. And you're fairly tightly held. We've been very fortunate in attracting investors who have been very loyal to the company. There's a great many funds overseas and in North America who own shares in Oroco. And we have articulated over the last three years our plan to rapidly put Cerro in production, and that has attracted shareholders of a certain type. What can we expect to see from the company in the next six months? In the upcoming couple of quarters, Oroco plans to finalize its mine plan. We've got metallurgy tests that are ongoing that will allow us to advance the project, and we expect shortly to be receiving the permits that will allow us to commence construction. We also have our eye on some acquisitions in the area of Cerro Prieto. To the east of the Cerro Prieto mine are a great many historical mines, many of them small artisanal mines, but nevertheless they indicate the presence of additional mineralization. So Oroco has just completed the acquisition of three separate properties, which adds significantly to the prospects of increasing the gold and silver resource. I expect we'll continue to look at additional acquisitions to the east of us, and we would hope to complete the necessary steps to start construction of the mine. We also expect during the next couple of quarters to commence exploration on an additional property, a group of properties that we own. These properties are located in southern Mexico in the state of Guerrero within an area of land that was originally called the Morelos Gold Reserve, which was a reserve set aside by the Mexican government because of its prospectivity for the discovery of gold. Since the time it was set aside, there's been approximately 20 to 25 million ounces of gold discovered by a number of companies, most prominently Gold Corp. And Oroco owns concessions in that area, which contain the same type of geology which hosts the significant gold resources upstrike. It sounds like what you've got going with Cerro Prieto is just the beginning. That's correct. We expect to get in production. We expect to expand the resource at Cerro Prieto. And we have great expectations that our property in Guerrero will yield similar results to some of its neighbors. Most recently, New Strike has made significant discoveries of gold in the region. Gold Corp, who are our closest neighbor, have in excess of 12 million ounces in, uh, in reserves. And Torex is also a neighbor. They have in excess of 3 million ounces. We're quite optimistic that our Shoshapala property is going to be a very interesting one. So we've got a number of things to be excited about in 2012, both the development of a gold mine and the discovery of additional gold resources in two different locations. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, the Vice President of Corporate Development for Oroco Resource Corporation trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. IBC Advanced Alloys Corporation is a worldwide manufacturer and supplier of advanced materials and other immediate products with a focus on rare metals or beryllium-related alloys 
as well as non-ferrous alloys for a wide range of industrial applications, including nuclear power, oil and gas, defense, electronics, and automotive. IBC has 84 employees and, while headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, has facilities in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Massachusetts, and Missouri. IBC trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IB.V and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as IAALF. This is Ellis Martin. Today I'm reporting from the Beverly Hills Investment Conference at the well-known Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and I'm with our sponsor, client, and I, I have to say friend, Ian Toodle. Thanks, Ellis. Nice to be here. What's with all this old is new again with Jerry Brown, the governor here? What the hell's going on? You know, he was actually on the radio this morning with a speech uh, as I was driving in. Jerry Brown has returned after 30 years of, I don't know, running Oakland or being attorney general for the state and they're initiating a new high-speed train from Southern California to San Francisco and I thought of IBC advanced alloys because I was wondering if there were going to be any possible beryllium uh, alloys in that train. Hmm, That's interesting. No, I never thought of that but you're on the right track anyway. Anything that has new energy saving and futuristic fantastic applications you might associate beryllium with some of those things. I saw something else on the way over here, and it really, it upset me a little bit. I, I see it all the time, so it doesn't upset me deeply. I saw a smashed vehicle with cheap sheet metal on it, and I'm wondering, why can't we build a stronger car and keep it light? That's true. I think we probably can build stronger cars, but Ellis, beryllium does not belong in the in the sheet metal on cars, okay? So that's not where we'd, we'd be putting beryllium, but we might put it in some of the drivetrain components, or, you know, conceivably it could be used for brake calipers. I mean, it Burley alloys, anyway, could be used for those things. Let's talk about IBC Advanced Alloys. How are you making money? Well, we're making money right now by manufacturing alloys and materials made out of beryllium and other metals. So we have a manufacturing plant in Wilmington, Massachusetts, state-of-the-art, 65,000 square feet. They manufacture a material called barrel cast, which is a beryllium aluminum alloy, 35% aluminum, uh, 65% beryllium, and it's 400% stiffer on a weight basis than steel. And then we have another plant in Indiana, in Franklin, Indiana. It's a suburb of Indianapolis. That plant makes alloys out of beryllium and copper and beryllium and bronze. You know, I noticed you're a vertically integrated company. You've got the resource, you mine it, and you're the end user. Right, we're the end user, and we think it's good that you bring that up because we really want to impress upon people that are looking to invest in rare metals and rare earths companies that you really need to identify the consumer of the mineral as well as the actual mineral itself. If you've gone out and established a resource somewhere, that resource is really worth nothing unless you're in a position to monetize it. And the way that you monetize it is by going out and making things out of it and finding your consumers. I can't tell you how many companies I'm aware of, and I'm aware of quite a few, and I'm trying to forget about a lot of them right now, that have a resource a 43101 compliant resource somewhere in the world. Some have infrastructure, uh, many don't. Their stock prices are, uh, I think, a bit overinflated, and they may be going into production somehow, somewhere in 2016. You're generating around $20 million a year right now. You are in production, and you're consuming what you produce. Yeah, it's an important distinction. We're now barely a four-year-old company. Uh, we've been growing our revenue at about 33% a year in the last couple of years. 
we're profitable at a manufacturing level, but uh, when you consider the company as a whole, we've, we've still got a few quarters to go before we will be, we hope, profitable at that point. Uh, but if things keep going the way that they are right now, we're quite confident that we will start to, uh, to make some money and continue to grow our gross revenues and our net revenues. Now, considering all of what we've just discussed, your share price might be dramatically depressed in light of everything. Well, it's depressed in light of where it has been and where we think it should be. I can't make any representations about what it should be. We saw our stock touch 30 cents at one point this year. We're now trading somewhere around 15, 16 cent range. I think the volume is the thing to really consider. We had some very good volume going into the summer, somewhere around 3 to 11 million shares a day, which is a healthy market. It means that people are paying attention to our stock. We lost a little bit of steam. We did a small financing back in September, which was greeted around the same time that the market took a turn and the European debt crisis set in and investors really started becoming negative. So we've seen our volume drop and we've seen the price of the stock come down. And, you know, it's really frustrating for us running the company because we really feel that uh, investors are really ignoring a very good story here and really ignoring the fundamentals of the company and focusing more on the macro situation. Well, how can they ignore that you're a supplier to Boeing? Well, we're not a supplier to Boeing directly. Uh, Thanks for mentioning that. We are a supplier to a company that supplies Boeing, so the Dreamliners have our copper beryllium wire in them. IBC is an unknown story. Not a lot of people have really seen some of the things that we're up to, and we've got to educate educate people from scratch about what beryllium is to start with. And it's not an easy story to digest right off the bat because we are vertically integrated. We've got exploration, we've got uh, research, we've got manufacturing. And it, it's not just a, an exploration story where, you know, we go out and drill a hole, we find some beryllium, and then we go out and promote it, and, you know, the stock goes through the roof. It's not like that. It's a sophisticated story for a sophisticated investor that's prepared to take some risk. So you're saying the market in general is not sophisticated? I didn't say that, but I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, you, you always try and put me in these spots, Ellis. Uh, I'm not saying that, but, you know, some people... <laughs> Some people are really not paying any attention uh, to anything other than momentum and, you know, what everybody else is doing at the time. You know, everybody wants to climb on the stock when it's rising. You know, when it falls below 20 cents, they'll look at it and think there must be something wrong, and then the volume dries up. And it's got to be very frustrating for, you know, people that think that their company is very good and, and is a rising star. Well, clearly, the smartest money is invested when nobody's looking at a lot of these companies, especially now when the market is somewhat uh, sideways or, or depressed. There's a lot of opportunity right now, and your company potentially might be a great long-term investment. Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, and the, if you look at the chart, the needle has barely moved uh, over the last three years. It's had some movement up to about 30 cents. And uh, it's fallen back. In the last couple of months, it touched as low as 11 cents. I mean, it's just mortifying to watch that. You know, you get to the situation where you're in management, where you start watching that, and you, you, you wonder if you're missing something. You know, we're at 16 cents right now. I noticed today the volume has uh, climbed a little bit. When I checked this morning, we were at about 600,000 on the Canadian side. So, you know, a million share a day, that's not a bad day. Well, you know, what's interesting, one of the things that I find interesting about your company is the multitude of uses for the product. It does not have a singular use. There's many, many different functions for the metal. Initially, we concentrated on taking some low-hanging fruit from some of the uh, companies that are that consider us to be a competitor. But really, the largest growth we feel is going to come from developing new products, new spaces, and attracting new buyers 
for uh, you know things made out of beryllium. For instance, uh, you've probably talked about this before on your program. Uh, we're funding research through Texas A&M and Purdue Universities to uh, develop a new nuclear fuel that has better thermal cooling characteristics than uh, present fuel rods made strictly out of uranium. For anybody in the uranium business these days, they know that 2011 has, it was not a good year. Fukushima was not a good thing, and uh, it hurt that business and hurt uh, you know, the, the general public's uh, concept of what nuclear energy is all about. I was watching a program on the Speed Channel a few weeks ago, and they were, man- they were building a car. And uh, the one thing that I noticed about the car was it had a very heavy drivetrain. And to me, I'm not suggesting to you right now that we've got a product to address this, but it occurred to me right off the bat that our barrel cast is a perfect, you know, cast, lightweight product to house a a drivetrain in a vehicle. It's stiff, it's light, it has very good heat-dissipating characteristics. Well, you know, what's interesting is we have another show that our company owns called Car Kicks on another channel. This might be a, a good topic of discussion. What are you doing to develop that idea, if anything? The short answer, the candid answer is, I don't really know. We have a sales and marketing team in both of our plants. In fact, we have four plants, but we have two divisions. So we have a copper alloys division in Franklin, Indiana, and then we have an aluminum beryllium division, which is called Engineered Materials in Wilmington, Massachusetts. So they're responsible for marketing the product. But what we do have uh, right now is a, um, a very capable individual who came on board a few months ago. His name is Chris Huskamp. He's a consultant to us. Uh, he's also an engineer that we met through Boeing. Chris has a close working relationship with Formula One and NASCAR. You know, he would be a good person to ask about that. In fact, maybe I might suggest that at some point uh, you and Chris get together on that car show. Well, I'd certainly like to talk to him about it because I've been looking for a way to uh, tie in this aspect of our business to this great car show that we have because a lot of people are really interested in cars and they know a lot more about cars than, let's say, beryllium. So it's an education process, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, as you know, uh, these days with the next generation vehicles, it's all about engineered materials performance. It's all about creating something that's more lightweight, something that's stiffer. If you can produce a stiffer chassis in a car and curb weight, you're going to have fuel efficiency, and that creates value. So manufacturers are prepared to step up and pay a little bit more for better material that will allow them to uh, engineer weight uh, reductions in the vehicles, which allow them to comply with, with the EPA requirements for vehicles. Well, you certainly know a lot about cars. How does that happen? I love cars. You know that. You're a fantastic driver. I didn't know they had a Grand Prix in Vancouver. Very funny. I've been visiting with Ian Toodle, the Vice President of Corporate Development for IBC Advanced Alloys, IBC Trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IB.V and in the U.S. is IAALF. Ian, thanks so much for joining me at the Beverly Hills Investment Conference at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Thanks, Ellis. Nice to be here. See you again. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, 
Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of 18 cents and is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Neil, welcome back to the program. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Give us an update on Apogee Silver. Well, we've commenced our trial mining since uh, we last spoke, and the guys are still busy with development. We should start opening up the first uh, couple of stubs in the next month or two. It's very exciting. We've been receiving really, really good grades. I'd love to be able to disclose what they are, but we're just doing our checks and balances and making sure that the numbers are correct. It's very exciting news and certainly very pleasing to have better than expected results. You recently disclosed on December 20th two drill hole results, 515 grams per ton of silver at one and 462.9 grams per ton at another. That's fairly significant. Yeah, those are individual drill hole results, and obviously you can't take that on their own, but, you know, there's other drill holes that you've got to take them into account with. But they're certainly indicative of uh, a very prospective resource, and, you know, we're certainly seeing sort of comparable numbers in the underground. The question is how much dilution are we going to get and so on, and that's why we're busy with the trial mining program, to firm up on those numbers to see what we're going to get out. You know, we should start, once we've built up a little stockpile, we will start uh, custom toll milling, and that will provide us with... Uh, useful information for just confirmatory on our plant design, which we're finalizing as well right now. You know, that really sets the scene for us to take the company to the next stage, which is to put the mine into production and start producing silver commercially from within Bolivia. Is there any way to pin down the timeline on that? very much depends on how our permitting process goes with the permitting of our plant. I think uh, I might have mentioned to you before that we had a permit for mining and custom toll milling for up to 200 tons per day. And we're currently in the process of obtaining a second permit for a 400 ton per day processing facility at the site. That involves a number of stakeholders and a number of processes. And we're in the middle of that. And so we're expecting to receive an you know, environmental permit in the second quarter of this year. And from there, we will go straight into construction and hopefully have a plant in commercial production early in 2013. Well, that's just over a year away. It's a very prolific part of Latin America, and you have a unique arrangement with the government and the people in Bolivia. That's right. I think most of the companies that are operating in Bolivia have gone the extra mile to working with the local communities in that, but we enjoy special support from the local community in that the mine is a historical mine. It produced, uh, you know, 9 million ounces for 75 years before it was uh, closed down in 1952. So the local people were very, very excited to see the mine come back into production again. It's going to, you know, receive some of its former glory that it will regain some of its former glory that it had before. So we've seen a lot of support from that point of view. And we've also gone the extra mile in terms of making sure that we employ guys local to the area and we're training up the people local to the area into more skilled positions as well, as opposed to getting in contractors and so on. And that's important because, you know, if you don't invest in the people in the area, then uh, they don't buy into the project. And you need to have that in this day and age. You can't expect to just, you know, build a clinic and expect the guys to be happy with that. You've got to go the extra mile and make sure that they see the benefits of any development in their particular, you know, zone of influence or the mine, you know. What kind of job pool of experienced miners is available locally? That's the trouble. We were, you know, hoping to find a large number of skilled people, but it seems that that's not the case. So we find that a lot of the, you know, we're going through a fairly steep learning curve with the guys we've employed, training them up from scratch. You know, they're new to mining. 
they're young people. Their grandfathers did the mining. Many of them are not around anymore, so we're having to start from the beginning again. We've got the patience for that, and I think it's important to have the patience for that because it'll pay the dividends in the medium term. What we're doing is we're uh, complementing the local force with a few skilled professionals. We've got a multinational management team, Bolivians, we have Peruvians, South Africans, we have Canadians on our team. You know, these guys all work together in expatriate environments, if you like, and have the experience of dealing with workforces that are perhaps not as skilled as we'd like to, but they also have the skills of training them up and getting them up to a level that's of a world-class standard. I recently interviewed David Morgan, and he's forecasting a $60 an ounce price point for silver before the end of this year. If that's the case, that may double the value of whatever resource you'll be reporting from where silver sits today. That's right. I mean, your cutoff grade drops significantly if the metal prices go up. Our life of mine plan is based on a very conservative, you know, $22 silver price, which is, you know, the kind of engineering way of looking at it. If you put in a $60 silver price, you know, that kind of, I would say, doubles your return on investment, definitely. And it also doubles the resource size. If you want to mine a larger resource, you can look at a completely different uh, scenario, maybe bringing in some more lower-grade tons and, you know, expanding the mine going forward to capitalize on the increased total number of ounces that we have in the resource. For me, it's it's really exciting because it immediately drives, you know, the revenue number. And if you've got a cost per ounce of 9 or $10 per ounce as a mining cost, you know, and maybe $12 or $13, 12 to $15 for a total cost of, to company, and you have a revenue or a price of $60 silver, that's, that's a significant profit margin, isn't it? Neil, as always, it's been great to catch up with you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with the president of Apogee Silver, Neil Ringdahl. Apogee trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm up here with the president of Silvercrest Mines, that's Scott Drever. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in STVZF. Scott, nice to see you again. Seems like just a few days ago we were in Beverly Hills, and now we're in Vancouver. How are you? I'm really well, Ellis, and thanks for having me again. Now, you've had some developments with respect to La Jolla that you alluded to when we spoke last in December. What's been happening in La Jolla? Well, I think in December when we spoke, we were in the midst of doing a resource calculation for La Jolla, our initial resource. We got that work done, and we did the release, at least the press release, on the summary results of 
that, which showed that we have 109 million ounces of silver equivalents in an inferred category. That's a game changer, I'd like to say. Maybe you're not saying it, but it's a definitely a game changer. And uh, what's the next step with regard to La Jolla then? Certainly, I think your words are reasonably well chosen. It's, it's significant for us, and it has the earmarks of being significant in the mining industry. We, of course, tested only a small portion of the potential area with that result of uh, 109 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, we are anxious, of course, to uh, look at the remainder of the potential area. And so we've embarked on a um, an 80-hole program. We have one drill rig that has been running there since early December, and we have two more drill rigs lined up to go in here shortly. Now, I should review for those that are hearing about your company for the first time that you're a producer in the silver and the gold space with regard to your flagship project, Santa Elena, and that project is financing a lot of your present and future operations, isn't it? Yes, it is. We started the uh, Santa Elena Mina last year. We've reached pretty much steady state. It's an open pit heap leach operation that last year on a, on a partial production year, we produced, I think it was 20, almost 27,000 ounces of gold and about 430,000 ounces of silver. So that is providing us with a nice stable uh, cash flow platform that will enable us to uh, do the expansion plan that we have on tap at Santa Elena to uh, double the production over the next three years and allow us to do aggressive uh, exploration work on a project like La Jolla. Now, you really weren't affected at all, at least not drastically. You saw some share price growth. I believe the value of your stock increased by about 35 to 40 percent during October, November, uh, pulled back just a little bit in November. Compared to your peers, that's a tremendous growth. But what do you think is responsible for that? Well, I think it's uh, just a progression of things and us doing what we said we would do. We said we would be in production uh, on time and on budget, and we were. We said our production would be a certain number of ounces, and we're hitting those targets. So those things are online, and that helps, of course, if you have cash flow that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, then, of course, that helps stabilize your price, I think, as well. Now, you had a couple of research analyst reports that have come out within the last year or so that had your share price value at double what it is now within the next 12 to 16 months, but that valuation was done before this latest report. Do you think that'll change? Yeah, the two uh, analysts that have put out reports on us, one is Stuart McDougall out of Jennings in Toronto, and the other is Nick Campbell out of uh, Canaccord Genuity here in Vancouver. As you say, they've both picked target numbers that are about double our $2.25 share price at the moment, and I would encourage your your listeners to uh, check with those particular uh, companies to to look at those reports. They did include some minor values, I think, for the La Jolla. And as we move forward, of course, those will probably change upwards as we go forward. Now, you're fairly tightly held, too. We don't have 250, 300 million shares out there, do we? Our outstanding and issued right now at the moment is about 87.5 million, I think. Fully diluted, we're just under 100 million, which compared to a lot of companies, as you point out, is not a lot. And over the course of the past few months, I haven't seen a lot of hostile activity either related to your stock. Hostile in that you mean uh, selling off of the stock? No, it it looks like some accumulation going on and obviously we're bumping around our all-time highs. So if we can establish that base uh, above $2, uh, then that gives us a real nice platform to move uh, upwards from their pending uh, positive results from uh, Santa Elena and La Jolla. Now one of the analysts I interview is David Morgan and he has silver hitting $60 announced sometime during this year, 2000. 
2012, of course, that can't be bad news for your company. It's got to be good news if, in fact, that does happen. Yeah, I know David, and I've interviewed with him a couple of times, and his $60 number isn't outside of my belief system. I think probably a base of, of $29 for silver is, is pretty decent. I don't anticipate it being at 60 and staying there. Uh, I would think probably, you know, overall an average of 40 45 somewhere there. But to hit 60 wouldn't surprise me a bit. Can I ask you what the cost of production per ounce is for Silvercrest? We're still in a bit of a ramp-up mode here. We're almost to steady state where we can put a hard number on those. But our last year numbers are up until the third quarter of last year. We were seeing something in the order of 750 an ounce of uh, silver equivalent. So we've got very, very good margins at Santa Elena. What are you going to be doing during the next 12 months? We've started on, a, on an expansion program, as I mentioned, uh, at Santa Elena. That entails putting in a conventional mill. We're doing underground development. Uh, we started the decline here last week and that'll be going through 2012. We're doing a pre-feasibility study on a satellite deposit cruise de Mayo. Of course we're going to be very aggressive on uh, La Jolla to uh, turn around a second resource estimate after we finish this 80-hole program. Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure to meet with you and speak with you. I've been speaking with the president of Silvercrest Mines, Scott Drever. Again, Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, easily found. Just type in STVZF from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Scott Drever, thanks for joining us today. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush Resources, joins us now for a conversation about his company's operations in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V and the U.S. on the OTCQX as GDRRF. Their flagship project is the Ranjen Gold Deposit, where they have defined 249,000 ounces of 43101 compliant inferred gold. Extensive core and reverse circulation drilling was conducted in late 2010 that has significantly expanded the Ranjen deposit. The company's permits are all located in areas underlain by the West African Beremian Greenstone belts which have a prolific history of gold production in this area of the world. Len, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis, for having me. Now, you were gone for a while in Burkina Faso. Tell us about the highlight of your trip, if you don't mind. It was a quick trip, about a week, but we got a lot accomplished in that time frame. We visited eight of our 12 permits, drove about 1,600 kilometers around the country in order to do that. We witnessed three drill programs that were underway. The drills have now moved on to three other new sites, so we've still got three programs underway. We hope to have them all wrapped up before the end of the year. So it was a good trip in terms of seeing where we're at with our drill programs, and we're pretty excited about what we think will be coming out of the assay lab. At least a couple of the cases, things look very good. At our Rongwen gold deposit, some of our more recent results are about 1.49 grams per ton over 38 meters and 2.16 gram per ton over about 25 meters. We seem to be coming up with similar material, so we're looking forward to a resource update and a vastly expanded resource come the end of Q1 this year. Secondly, we went to a permit called Woasi. We've had that permit for some time. It wasn't that high on our priority list for a period of time until our chief geologist decided to take a little field trip there. In the time between when we acquired the permit and when he went for his visit, a large number of local 
artisanal miners had moved in. They've been extracting gold from two structures with two other satellite structures as well. The main structure has a strike length now of about 1,700 meters that they've excavated, so a very good-looking strike length. And the permit itself lies near the Markoy Fault, which is one of the major geological structures in Burkina. There are three mines that are associated with that fault, and Owasi has the Markoy Fault running through it. The mines typically occur on splays off of the main sort of northeast trending fault, and sure enough, the strike length of the artisanal workings is a splay off that fault. That's very promising. As well, some of the rock sampling results we're getting back from that area are anywhere from 2 to 9 grams, so very significant material. So that was at what's called the Vilwasi site. The other site that we looked at was Poissin, and there the artisanal miners are actually getting mechanized. They have a tractor, they have uh, diesel pumps, and they're quite a bit better organized than these guys usually are, which is indicative of them having found enough gold in the last year to purchase that equipment. A very interesting looking site. We're getting rock samples at Poissin of up to 9 grams and uh, a 700 meter strike length as well. So both very significant sites. While we were there, we made a determination to put about 2,800 meters of RC drilling into those sites. First drilling that's ever been conducted on that permit, and we're very, very enthused by what we think will come out of the drilling there. Did you expect all of this before your trip? No. <laughs> Not really. The WASI permit we've had for several years, but as I said, it was always a low-level priority because there were other permits with more sort of evident or you know obvious targets. And really what happened was there's a growing season in Burkina. The crops, the millet and sorum and so forth grow up to three meters high. And so if you do any field work during the growing season, you can't see where the artisanal workings are because they're basically covered with crop. As soon as they cut the crop, then mining workers or gold workers come back in and start digging again right through to the rainy season. And so when the crops were cut, suddenly the extent of their work became evident, and they hadn't been evident before that point. And as well, this is the time of year where they start up artisanal mining, so you're suddenly seeing camps and villages spring up where there was no one six weeks ago. So it was very startling to see how much activity was going on, and they were a very enthusiastic crowd of miners at the Poisson site. So the enthusiasm translates into passion for their exploration efforts as you proceed, correct? They're not there for their health. They're there to find gold, and if they find gold, then they're a happy lot. So they're finding gold. That's a good marker. But in addition, we've got the structural setting that we're looking for. We're seeing large, wide quartz veins that are obviously mineralized, the structural context in which those are occurring, the intrusives, the rock types, and the fact that you're on a display of the Marquois Fault are all very positive. So the step out looks pretty promising, and you feel that you have quite a bit of room in that regard. Well, having 1,700 meters worth of strike length is certainly, uh, at this point, very encouraging. As an example, or comparative, uh, our Rongwen gold deposit right now has a defined strike length of about 1,700 meters. So anytime you're getting up to over a mile of strike length, you can see some sort of tonnage potential that is quite intriguing. And the other thing I should add is that these guys aren't working on just one vein. There seems to be a series of parallel structures as well. So we're seeing some width, particularly at the Poissin site, which is a little bit shorter, uh, defined right now as about 700 meters, but it's considerably wider because there seems to be a number of parallel structures that they're working on. The last thing I'd mention is down in the southwest corner of the country near the Ghanaian border, Ampella resources came up 
with a new resource estimate on their Conquera gold deposit, they're up to 3.1 million ounces. And they announced subsequent to that that they staked another 750 square kilometers of ground. Well, they now surround our Medibo permit on all sides. And we've started a soil sampling program at Medibo, hope to have results by the end of the year as well, and we'll be formulating drill targets off of that. So another interesting target. This is something we've talked about before, Len. You may be considerably undervalued based on everything I've heard. I would tend to agree with that based on the level of activity we have, our permit locations, our geological team, just the, the vast array of drill results that we're anticipating having in the early new year. I, I really hope that our current share price is a distant memory early into the new year because I, I really think that we should be revalued at a much higher level. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as GDRRF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Mr. Sinclair was a general partner and member of the executive committee of two New York stock exchange firms and the president of a commodities clearing firm, as well as Global Arbitrage, a derivative dealer in metals and currencies, and we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. Jim, welcome back to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. Now, you had some news out last week with regard to your diamond drilling program at Buck Reef. We had, you know, some very fine results, actually discovery results. We have in the last two months announced two new discoveries. Tell us about that. Sure. One is Lingunya. The other one is on the Buck Reef. They're both very interesting. The property called Lingunya has surface values on it, and that's what we were looking primarily for. But of course, following the geology, we went deeper and came up with some very fine intercepts. The property is directly on strike with Tusker Mine, which is Barrick, and Barrick recently announced 4.2 million ounces there. It's very interesting to see how that works out. And the Buck Reef, we went to an area called Buck Reef Porphyry. We've come up with some not only extremely interesting grades, but also the widths are terrific. And so that looks like it's going to add a good deal of ounces to the Buck Reef. So I'm pretty happy about what's going on on the ground. When do you think we'll see some results? Well, the, the results will come in the ounces as we upgrade our 43101. And we have one upgrade in the making right now. As soon as this drill program is finished, we submit it to our engineering consultants, and they'll yield to us the ounces we've defined. What's your mandate for Tanzanian royalty for the next six months? To do two things. One, to obtain its mining license on the Kagosi property, which is near surface material. Number two, to go past the three million ounce mark on the Buck Reef project. At what point will investors look back to the winter and spring of 2012 
as a potential bargain area to have accumulated companies like yours and others in the junior resource sector. It's impossible for companies to continue, in my opinion, for companies to have the price of their stock stagnant or lower and the value of their assets continually rising. Gold always climbs a wall of disbelief in all sectors of its investment. But it's getting pretty close to a point now where arguing the future of gold becomes more difficult. You know that I believe that the true range for 2012 will be 1700 2100 I firmly believe that this accordion shop we've been going through is over and firmly believe in QE to infinity, as there's absolutely no other alternative in an election year. You mix them together in a pot, and uh, if you had a company that you could sell for, and let's just say this is purely hypothetical, let's say you could sell a company for $15, it's certainly not going to be trading at $3. It's my understanding that only about 2% of the investing public is even aware. I wonder if it is even 2%. And the capitalization of the gold companies, including the majors, is very small compared to other industrial groups. So at some point, there's going to be a tipping point where even if another 2 or 5 or 10% picked up on the idea of gold... Well, there'll be value buyers, too. As I say, you can analyze companies now according to the last sale of similar mix of ounces. Uh, ounces come in different categories. So a similar mix of ounces, then you take a look at what your ounces are, take a look at the mix of ounces, what their definitions are. You can pretty well figure out what the market for your company would be if you chose to sell it. Other people will be sharpening their pencils and come to the same conclusion that in the discrepancy between what the market sees as its value and what the value is in transaction is becoming larger and larger by the day. Eventually, it has to act as a magnet on the stock price. Who's going to do that homework? Well, people are looking. I mean, I've got a meeting on Wednesday. I'm surprised at the quality of the attendance. There are people who specialize in looking for items which have been depressed, not, you know, artificially or otherwise. There is, with all major investment firms, although it used to be quite large but small now, resource investing. It moves from uh, items such as copper and oil, always being watched in gold. Those are the type of people who who will uh, take an interest in it. And from that interest comes uh, write-ups, from write-ups comes your uh, retail interest. Last week, you alluded to a surprise coming in the market. Did we see that last Thursday or Friday? Well, actually, remember, everybody was bearish, and I said, give it two more days, and I think we're up 50 points since then, maybe a bit more. I did make a very pointed remark in that interview that that was a trading concept, not an investment concept. I was looking for the market to establish itself out of the shop in two days, but it's not tied to any specific singular news event. I think I made that quite clear in our last interview. We had some fairly significant news from Europe just before the weekend. The fact that the downgrading of France, it corresponds with a lower dollar, is not what people would have expected on Friday afternoon. Anomalies are important. When things happen that you don't expect to happen, you've got to ask yourself, well, why isn't the euro down hard on that? Well, there's a couple of reasons, one of which is that between 80 and 82 on the dollar, it seemed over the last years, uh, that's on the USDX measure, not for technical reasons, but basically fundamental reasons where central banks want to change the mix of their reserves, there's been significant selling of the dollar. It actually seems to continue. The uh, fact that we're in an election year, the fact that there's you know, not a dramatic difference between potential candidates as it stands right now, that if we follow John Williams' uh, shadow statistics that looks at our present statistics without the adjustments since 1970, you'd see that we're doing nothing but bouncing along the bottom. And that bottom, in truth, was created by QE1 and QE2. Now, not that QE3 it will solve anything. It won't. But we are in a political year. Short of a war with Iran, 
QE3 would be required to assure the present incumbency of remaining in office. So I don't see any alternative, truthfully, in, in reasonable analysis outside of QE to infinity. That, to me, uh, you know, the dollar is 50% euro on the USDX index. Well, there are 50% other. There could be quite a standoff where that's concerned, and not necessarily what everybody expects, a lower U.S. dollar in uh, 2012. A mix of the lower U.S. dollar in 2012 should it occur, and QE3 guarantees gold at a minimum of 2100 What do we have to see to trigger one of John Williams' hyperinflationary events and what I think would be a rise in interest rates, which might give some confidence to investors? Well, when we say confidence, you know, believe it or not, the, the general equities market will rise along with the gold market on that kind of impetus. The type of hyperinflation that the QE, a quantitative easing, creates is currency-induced cost push inflation. Currency-induced cost-push inflation. This is what most listeners and analysts can't understand. They see inflation as something that has to come with ebullient or overmuch demand in the marketplace for goods and services. But quite simply, when currencies change violently, it has the same impetus, and costs rise, and costs of raw materials will rise. And as costs of inputting raw materials rises, then costs of finished goods rises. That's about the type of inflation we're seeing now, although it doesn't show up in modern statistics. It certainly shows up in the statistics of John Williams, if you took the 1970 measures, you're running a considerable inflation right now. Again, QE3 will create a currency-induced cost-push inflation. Currency-induced because the changing in the currency will change the price of goods and services. When we try and explain oil right now and the use of oil and equate it to 100 or 100 plus dollars, it equates more through the rationale of currency-induced cost-push inflation than it does by overmuch demand for energy around the world growing. So it's a different type of environment that we're going to find ourselves in, one that very few understand, but one that is definitively coming, especially in an election year, especially without outstanding candidates dates, especially with business truly just bottom bouncing at the absolute best, especially with the risks we still have in the Middle East, especially in light of housing and uh, unemployment. Do you think with regard to those risks in the Middle East that gold will stay tied to the price of oil? The price of oil is part of the price of gold, not necessarily connected together, but certainly by the same stimulus. I think that in an election year, the present problems we're having in exchanging threats with Iran is extremely dangerous. You know, that you can start a war by mistake as easily as you can by intent. And right now we're flying very close to Iranian airspace and could very easily, even by accident, start a conflict. Do you believe that's going to happen this year, or should we not even speculate? If you get two people with weapons of destruction trained to kill within two or three feet of each other, you're looking to start a war. Jim, it's been a great pleasure as always to speak with you this week. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Well, I look forward to it, too, and I would like to thank our listeners. I've been talking with Jim Sinclair, president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. 
Good to be here, Ellis. Many of our listeners are wondering how to proceed in the market. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I like to use the analogy of the elevator. Let's say you've just walked into the lobby of an office building. Obviously, you want to go up, you know, as we think gold is going to go up and and our resource stocks are going to go up. The door opens to the elevator and you don't see an arrow. Is it going up? Is it going down? Well, you go ahead and you get in. Well, the elevator actually ends up going down. And, and, you know, all of us will say, ah, damn, you know. But so what? So we're only going to go down one or two levels. Maybe there's a parking garage down or whatever, but we know it's going to happen, right? The elevator is going to come right back up and it's going up. So I like to use that now with an analogy for these markets. Yes, if we step in today, we think everything could go up and blast off from right here. But what if we're wrong? What if this elevator short term is going to go down on us? But we know it's going to come back up and go back up, and we're going to reach the heights that we deem are coming in gold and silver and resource stocks, you know, I mean, much, much higher than they are uh, today and have ever been. So I think we just have to have, you know, take a deep breath here. Again, patience, patience, patience. I keep preaching this, but this is why we need core positions. If you're not in the market now, you've got to establish some core positions and a, a lot of companies that you're comfortable with. And this is what we provide you with in our services. There's a lot of alternatives or so where you can put your investment dollars. If something happens, if this elevator goes down on us first, save some cash and redeploy that cash maybe at lower levels. Again, we are long-term bullish. The short-term stuff, it's pretty tough to figure out. The best investing is done with patience with an eye for the long-term then. Well, that's the way that I've always approached these markets. And my subscribers know we have no intention of being traders. We are not into the short-term stuff. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, maybe next month. You know, looking out over the horizon for a year, a couple of years, we are extremely bullish. And we just think that everybody really needs to you know, share that viewpoint, especially our followers, because we just have no intention of the short-term stuff. It doesn't excite us. and Most people are not good at it. It's a totally different game. So we are really long-term investors. Take some patience. We step in here. A lot of the companies that we follow are relatively low-priced companies, a lot of them less than 10 cents. But we're in there for a reason, because we see something. A lot of these little companies, percentage-wise, are up 50 to 100% off their bottom already, and that's pretty cool. But it's all about patience, developing core positions, and waiting for the markets to come to us. What is the risk factor when you're investing in a super cheap company like that? You know, number one, we invariably are looking at the management. Who is the management? What is their track record? Does the company have some cash in the bank so they don't have to run out and do another private placement at these ridiculously low prices, you know, the share prices? It's pretty tough if the stock is, you know, 10 cents or less and you need to raise a substantial amount of money. It's just incredible dilution, and we uh, really don't want to be part of that situation. We're also religiously following the insider transactions on all of the companies that we're involved with. And so we feel good if we know the insiders have a substantial position or are continuing to buy in our companies. It gives us a much greater degree of confidence, okay? Even though the share price is less than $0.10, cents, it gives us that added confidence that we need to, to stay the course. And right now, we're starting to notice some pretty good volume and upside activity on some of the very, very small uranium companies, many of which are selling for less than $0.10. Cents. What's this all about? I have no idea. We're on board, and subscribers know we're on board with the these companies. 
So we love to just take a nice position and wait, and we're going to have some great gains down the road. Let's face it, as everybody says, I mean, the secret to making money is what? you got to buy low, and you got to sell high. Well, when we're buying, let's say, below $0.10, cents, I've got to believe we're buying <laughs> about as low as you can possibly get. If we've got some good management, maybe insider activity, some cash in the bank, we are comfortable with waiting and let those markets come to us. Follow Dudley Baker and his picks by subscribing to his website and his service, PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. That's PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Dudley, thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Ellis. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.